Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus enters a village where he is confronted by ten lepers who stand at a distance crying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In the ancient world, leprosy was not just a disease, but was considered ritually unclean and led one to be quarantined from their community, the original social distancing. Leviticus 13.46 explains that the person with leprosy shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone in a habitation outside the camp. Now, earlier in St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus has transversed this social boundary between the clean and unclean by touching a leper. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we're told that a man full of leprosy came to Jesus and fell on his face and besought him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. By contrast, in this morning's passage, when Jesus deals with this group of lepers, there is no intimate connection through touch. The lepers observe their social quarantine by standing at a distance. Now, this does not necessarily imply coldness or spiritual distance. We're told in the parable of the prodigal son that the father saw his lost son at a distance before running to meet him and falling at his feet. But here in this story, there isn't some magical touch like just a few weeks ago when Jesus spit on his hands and touched the mute and deaf man's tongue and ears. There aren't magic words There's no incantation. Jesus merely commands the group to go and show themselves to the priests for the required ritual cleansing. The implication then being that the healing had already begun or at least been concluded by the time they got to the priest. But they went and the ten of them were all cleansed. Now after the ritual, only one of them came back to Jesus And he threw himself down on his face and praised God. St. Luke here reveals an interesting detail behind the scenes access about this one who returned. He was a Samaritan, not a Jew. Samaritans have played a fairly significant role in St. Luke's gospel up to this point. We've seen them frequently in our readings on Sundays. Of course, the thing about Samaritans were they were looked down on by their Jewish counterparts as being sorts of half-breeds, not clean themselves. The fact that only one of the ten comes back to Jesus causes him to wonder aloud, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? As God's chosen people, the Jewish leopards should have understood the significance of their miraculous healing. Yet they either didn't care enough to return to Jesus to offer thanks, or were blinded by their own self-centeredness and bloated sense of self-importance. Those who didn't return 
never overcame that initial distance that existed between themselves and Jesus at the beginning of the reading. Only the one who bows down to praise God at Jesus' feet accomplished that. And it is at the end of the reading, a rather puzzling place, where we get Jesus' words of healing. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Yet the group had already been healed of leprosy and cleansed by the priest. So why does Jesus say that here at the end? Is he being repetitive? Is he being redundant? I think not. And I would argue that because the reading is not really about physical healing, but spiritual healing. There are many privileges that a priest has, getting to baptize new, newly born babies, getting to say the Mass Sunday after Sunday. These are all special and beautiful. Hearing confessions can be hard, but beautiful. But there's something sacred about getting to sit with a person who's sick and dying. In those moments, we certainly pray for the bodily healing of a person. Whether God decides to physically heal them or not is above our pay grade, but we do pray. But we pray for something more than just physical healing. The prayer in the visitation for the sick says, Almighty and ever-living God, maker of mankind, who dost correct those whom thou dost love, and chastise everyone whom thou dost receive, we beseech thee to have mercy upon this thy servant visited with thine hand. And to grant that he may take his sickness patiently and recover his bodily health, if it be thy gracious will. And that whensoever his soul shall depart from the body, it may be without spot presented unto thee. The epistle reading on such an occasion comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now the point here is not that God punishes us with sickness for our moral failings. There are some actions which have natural consequences that may affect our health of body or mind. However, to make normative judgments, someone is ill because they did X, Y, or Z, is often out of the scope of our knowledge and our authority. We see this in the gospel according to St. John. The disciples and Jesus passed a blind man, and the disciples asked him, Why is the man blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? To which Jesus replied, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. Trials like sickness, then, come not necessarily as punishment. Rather, they form the forge in which the person who suffers joins their sufferings to the suffering of Christ, thereby becoming refined and transfigured. And that was what happened in our reading this morning. The leprosy and the healing of the leprosy were not the end in and of itself. The men were physically healed, yes, but the healing was beneficial insofar as it opened their eyes to Christ as their Messiah. What good is the health of the body without the health of the soul? Your faith has made you well, then, is a statement more about the condition of the man's soul than his body. 
I think this morning's collect allows us to understand the reading at an even deeper level. And in the collect, we have two requests simultaneously. The first is that we prayed for an increase in faith, hope, and charity, or love, which are the three theological virtues. And then we asked for God to make us love what it is that he commands. Both requests share a common purpose, namely that we may obtain what God has promised. So the first request, which focuses on faith, hope, and love, requires us to define our terms. Faith is that which makes us alive, that which regenerates us. The author of Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the gift that we receive at our baptism, and we increase that gift through our continual participation in the sacraments, in our devotional life, and in committing good works. Hope, while distinct from faith, is nevertheless related. It looks forward to the future in reliance on God, knowing that what he has done is what he will do. And finally, love, which St. Paul tells us is the greatest theological virtue, is the sacrificial willingness to place an other above the self. The goal, according to the collect, is for us to, to have an increase in faith, hope, and love so that we might love what God has commanded us, evidence that we have been made well. The objects of our love has, have impacts on us. To love what is disordered makes us a disordered people. By loving what God commands, however, we're loving what is good and therefore being rightly ordered. This is why the psalmist speaks of the blessing that comes on the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That man, the psalmist says, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So we ask God for an increase in the theological virtues and we ask for him to instill in us a love for all the things that he commands. We desire these things to obtain what he has promised us, namely eternal life and union with God. But at the heart of the collect, it's understated, but it is there, is an understanding of our reliance on God's mercy, because without it, we would always fail to obtain those promises. So the reading invites us to place ourselves in the place of the lepers. Through the sacraments of the church, we have continual encounters with Christ who heals us and cleanses us again and again and again. He cleansed us in our baptism, in which we were washed by the word. He cleanses us in communion, where our sinful bodies are made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood. In the confessional, the benefits of our baptism are reapplied to remit the actual sins that we have committed. The lepers in the story come to Christ once for their healing, but we must return again and again and again to be healed, precisely because we are so aware of the fragility of our nature. So our task is to live in light of this recognition. This means a life of total dependence, not emancipation, not independence, not autonomy. This dependence, when fully realized, becomes a life of thankful praise for what God has done and for what he continues to do in us 
as we are continually conformed to his image. And this should breed in us a heightened sense of self-reflection in which we turn the spotlight inward to constantly assess ourselves, subjugating every part of who we are to our Lord. It's all too easy to be like one of the nine who presume on a grace that's been given to us, to ignore its ongoing implication and call on our lives. But if we truly want our souls to be healed, then the Samaritan leper from today's reading must become our model and template so that we too may one day hear those words, go, your faith has made you well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.